The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, let's uh, look at the questions again tonight. Wow, heaps of questions. That's always nice. It's good that people are interested and engaging. That's always wonderful. So let's see what we have. Um, dear Ajahn, I have uh, been growing fond of your teaching. Okay, that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I tried before and found it to be too technical. <laughs> My mind and knowledge about Buddhism were just not ready. Your teaching has a slow roasting effect. <laughs> what I appreciate most is the practicality. You taught us the foundations to build up the man mansion. If Ajahn Brahm has been so inspirational that pointed us to the magnificent mansion, you taught how to lay the brick by brick. Yeah, thank you. Okay, that's very, very nice. That's good. Uh, now to finish it with a question. How to increase metta and compassion in one's heart uh, if I'm not really a natural, compassionate person? Uh, so it, it is all, this is the interesting thing about these things. It is all about perception. Uh, it's about how we view people. Uh, that's really kind of the critical thing. Uh, and uh, one of them, this has two really ways of doing this. One is kind of the natural way of just starting having metta and compassion in how you treat people in ordinary life. Yeah, this is kind of one way. You just start by treating people with metta, with friendliness uh, on a daily basis. Uh, yeah, metta by body and speech, the Buddha says, is the foundation for all metta. Being friendly with people, being kind to them uh, through your interactions. Uh, and... Uh, and that is already quite hard, uh, and it, you know that already takes a lot of um, mindfulness and uh, recollection of the teachings to be able to do that. Uh, and then you bring that into your mental qualities. Uh, yeah, you have metta to what, just the way you think about people around you. Have compassion. You learn how to perceive them in the right way. Uh, and then eventually, they, it actually comes into your meditation practice. Uh, but the perceptions here are really uh, the other way of doing it, Ch challenging your perceptions of people, uh, always looking at people in a new way, uh, understanding how everyone is trapped in this world. Uh, we come into this world with a very powerful conditioning from the past. Uh, we are born, we look like we are innocent little babies. We're not innocent little babies at all. <laughs> we have all this history behind us. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the weird thing here. Uh, we look... <laughs> you know, to look cute and adorable to our mothers. Actually, deep down, we're not as cute as we look here. <laughs> yeah, these things are just waiting in the mind to come out. Uh, circumstances are coming out. Uh, and so we're trapped in this personality. We are trapped in this world by renewed conditioning. Uh, society around us has a tendency to push us in the wrong direction. Uh, Society is often harsh. Society wants to judge. Society does not want to be compassionate. Uh, society does not necessarily want society lock them up if they are bad. Uh, yeah, these kind of things. It's like the revenge, the thirst for revenge is often very strong uh, in people. Whereas revenge is stupid. Uh, stupid to have revenge. What is the point of revenge? Uh, has no point at all. Uh, the point should always be to help people to find a way out of their delusion, uh, out of their problems. Uh, revenge doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. Uh, it only serves our own defilements. Uh, so see the world in a new way. Develop this perception. See people as conditioned beings. Uh, and then you have compassion for them. And at the same time, 
rejoice in all the beautiful qualities that are there. There are lots of beautiful qualities in people in the world. They are part of a Buddhist community. You don't even have to be a Buddhist. Lots of beautiful people in all kind of walks of life. Yeah, Whether they are Christians or atheists or Muslims or whatever, it doesn't really matter. There's good qualities everywhere in people. And so you start to see those things and you rejoice in those things. What a wonderful thing it is that there are all these good qualities out there. And really what it is all about is just developing your perceptions, looking at the world in a new way, searching for those good qualities. There's a nice sutta that I usually read out on every single retreat. It's called the Agatha Pativinaya Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, Numerical Discourse of the Buddha, the chapter, fifth chapter on the fives, number 162 is the number of the sutta. And um, it's just a, it's quite a well-known sutta because it deals directly with how to overcome any ill will or negativity. But the flip side of overcoming ill will is actually developing metta. So the, the two are not really separable. Uh, by overcoming ill will, you are actually developing metta, you're developing friendliness. Uh, what it says in that sutta, we should always look for the good qualities in other people. Uh, we should kind of... Uh, and not look for the bad qualities. The Buddha used the simile of a ragrobe-wearing monk, or maybe none. And when a ragrobe-wearing monk goes around the row, they're looking for rags, because rags are there to patch up the robes and making sure the robe looks acceptable. Yeah. And so when you walk around the road and you find a rag, you kind of pull the rag out, looking at the qualities of the rag and maybe some good parts and bad parts. In the same way, we kind of look at the person, we kind of pull all the qualities of the person out, see the good and the bad. And then we take the bad parts, we tear it off wherever the bad parts are, tear that off and chuck it out because it's rubbish. In the same way, the bad qualities of other people are rubbish for our minds. They are detrimental. They lead away from seeing good things some developing good qualities in ourselves. Uh, and so we tear it off. Uh, we throw those bad qualities out because they're rubbish. Uh, and it is not, this is not about deluding yourself. Uh, this is about understanding that there isn't any way of really measuring people anyway. Uh, it's not as if we're going to see people as they actually are. Uh, what the choice really is only uh, to see those qualities that lead to spiritual progress for ourselves and others, uh, or see qualities that lead to spiritual regress, uh, going backwards. Uh, so you always want to see those things that lead to progress. Uh, forget about seeing people as they actually are. There's no such thing here. Uh, people are different to, diff- to different people. Uh. So this is how you do this, looking always for the good qualities, especially in a community like this. Uh, don't allow yourself to dwell on the little irritations. There's always going to be little irritations. They are irrelevant. Uh, the big picture that matters. Uh. So it's all about developing perceptions, developing, 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 continuously almost. Yeah, So much of the path is about this. Uh, and then gradually metta and compassion, they come about. Uh, most importantly of all, do it in daily life. Act with kindness, uh, speak with kindness, think with kindness. Uh, those people who are difficult, remember her. Uh, they are in a prisons of their own. Uh, have compassion for people in prison. Uh. All right, so let's go on to the next one. Dear Ajahn, much gratitude for your teachings. I understand about sila and being kind in daily life, but I am a bit confused about mindfulness in daily life and moment-to-moment awareness. We can practice Sampajanya and reflect before doing all our activities, 
But is it is there anything else we should be doing here? Off cushion. As lay people, we don't get much time to meditate, so off cushion meditation is very important for us, including walking meditation. Please advise. Many thanks. Yeah, there's a very common idea in Buddhism that you should be mindful in daily life. And it seems to be that you just are mindful. I don't really say exactly why you should be mindful. You just be mindful. And that's good in its own right, just to be mindful in daily life. And uh, there isn't much evidence for that in the suttas, to be honest. Uh, and I don't really agree with that kind of idea. Y- yes, it's good to be mindful, but you have to know why you are going to be mindful in daily life. Just being mindful, eat mindfully, act mindfully, all of that. Uh, just being mindful uh, is not in its own right necessarily all that useful. Uh, the idea seems to be that if you are mindful in daily life, then it will have an effect in your meditation. Uh, but actually... The Buddha doesn't say that mindfulness leads to more mindfulness. Uh, what leads to mindfulness is sila, is morality. That is what leads to mindfulness and right view. Huh? So we need to, if you're going to be mindfulness in daily life, you have to understand why you are going to be mindful in daily life. And the reason why is so as to en- enable yourself to live well. Huh? So you have this, that like I was saying yesterday, sati adipateya, you are... Uh, your mindfulness is in charge of your life. You're ruled by mindfulness. Uh, and then you can guide your mind in the right direction. That is what is important. Uh. So don't just be like mindful just for mindfulness sake. That, I don't, the Buddha never says that is useful. Uh. You're mindful because uh, it enables you to react skillfully in daily life. Uh. You can see that you're about to say something bad. Uh. You can say that you see that you're about to act in a bad way, uh, that you're about to think in a bad way. And that gives you the opportunity to change uh, the way you do things. That is what matters. Uh. Then when your sila becomes more purified, that becomes the cause for your meditation to, be <coughs> to improve. Uh. That is one kind of mindfulness. Another kind of mindfulness. Remember mindfulness in Buddhism, the word sati, has two meanings. One is just the general idea of being aware. The other one is the idea of memory. Reminding yourself of what you're supposed to be doing. One of the definitions of sati, mindfulness in the suttas, is the ability to remember what you said and did a long time ago. That is kind of one of the ideas behind this. And so, in daily life, if you want to develop perceptions of metta and compassion, uh, the memory of the teachings uh, that reminds you how to develop these things are with you. Uh, you're not just mindful, but you bring the teachings with you into that mindfulness. Uh, and then you can actually change and develop these perceptions I was just talking about before, uh, of compassion, uh, of metta, uh, towards other people throughout the day. Uh. You can develop ideas of impermanence throughout the day. You can develop ideas of death throughout the day. All of these perceptions can be developed continuously. So don't just be mindful. Use the mindfulness skillfully to actually change your mental states and move them in a direction that, is more, that are more wholesome and more useful and beneficial. And there's no end to how much you can do of this. You can do this continually throughout the day. So that is what I recommend this kind of idea of always being mindful it comes from the idea that sampajanya is part of the satipatthana sutta and because people just read the satipatthana sutta and don't have a broader understanding of what meditation is about they get trapped by those kind of ideas they don't go beyond them
So uh, walking meditation again, great. Please do walking meditation. Uh, yeah, so uh, it, it's a very good thing to do, and but use it for contemplation and all this kind of thing, not just to be mindful, mindful, mindful. Uh, and then uh, you are on the right track, I would say. Uh, it's a little bit more work to be um, reflecting in this way. You have to kind of put your mind towards it a little bit extra. Uh, uh, and that may be, some, for some people it might be easy just to be mindful, but uh, you need to actually do that little bit of work of reflecting in the right way. Uh, all right. Dear Ajahn, sometimes we become mechanical while meditating. Yes. So we are aware of breath from moment to moment, but also other things happening in the environment. Mind drifts away, but we are still aware of the breath. But that doesn't lead to any results. Please advise how not to become mechanical. <laughs> um, okay, so um, yeah, don't, don't just become like a, a meditating, just meditate, meditate without really... Uh, reflecting on things so that this is true uh, you have to kind of the idea is to develop the meditation uh, and um, uh, it doesn't mind if the matter if the mind drifts a little bit you can expect that to happen a bit of drifting of the mind uh, but uh, remember the things that lead you in the right direction are things like uh, uh, this is why the buddha talks about the six recollections yeah the idea of enjoying what you're doing uh, bringing to mind the good qualities, all the anusatis we talk about all the time, they are so important uh, because that is where the joy arises. And where the joy arises, uh, where the happiness and these things arise, that is where meditation becomes real fun. Uh. So if you find yourself drifting, uh, very gently nudge the mind a little bit. Uh, yeah, What are the good things in my life? It's a very simple idea of the fact that you are living well uh. Yeah, we're talking about these things now for a few days. The idea of the Buddha Nusati. I talked about Buddha Nusati yesterday here. How to reflect on the Buddha in a good way here. Same thing with the Dhamma, the Sangha. Who are the Sangha members you really respect? People like Ajahn Brahm maybe or whatever it might be here. Things, people that really build up some good qualities within here. Yeah, the recollection of your Kalyanamittas at the BSV here. The, uh, the acts, acts of generosity that you have done in the past, uh, counting the blessings in your life, uh, having a sense of gratitude for all the good things uh, in the world, uh, uh, in your life. Um, whatever it is, uh, it, but it has to be spiritual happiness, not worldly happiness. Uh, this is what drives, makes meditation really powerful. Uh, so, um, but don't try these things too hard. Uh, if you try too hard, uh, to give rise to joy, you quash the joy. Uh, the joy comes from very gentle movements of the mind, very gentle recollection, very gentle nudging of the mind in the right direction. Uh, that's where the joy arises. Uh, so be gentle with yourself. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's not going to work. Uh, if it doesn't work, just hang out with the breath, see what happens. Sometimes it's just a matter of putting in more time and gradually things disappear, they become peaceful. Uh, Sometimes it's about living more purely in your daily life, having more metta in your daily activities. Uh, if you can really purify that, come back next year, suddenly things are much more powerful. Uh, there's a lot of patience on this path. Uh, this is part of the problem. Demands too much patience. Uh, patience is difficult. Uh, patience is the highest austerity according to the Dhammapada. Uh, yeah. Kanti padamang tapo titikaha. All right. 
Dear Ajana, thank you very much for all your teachings. Can you discern sounds during the Nimitta stage? Thank you. Uh, sometimes you can. It depends on how powerful the sounds are. Senses are starting to turn off at this particular time in your meditation. When you're Nimitta, the lights become strong uh, and there's a lot of bliss coming with that. It tends to kind of, the senses tend to fade into the background. Uh, but if it's a loud sound or a medium loud sound, depending on the strength of what is going on in your mind, uh, sounds are still uh, uh, discernible. It, sounds are only completely cut out when you enter the jhana stages. Uh. So uh, this is what it meant by uh, not lack of focus today. Amanasikara was the, actually was the Pali word, so we write about that. I can now confirm that, having checked it afterwards. You can see I do my homework as well. Isn't that good? I don't kind of leave things hanging. We actually check it out afterwards. So um, it means that you lose the focus on the breath because something else becomes prominent, uh, disturbing, a sound or whatever it is. That's why it is useful for everyone to be sensitive and quiet uh, when we meditate together here. Dear Ajahn, we are normally told to do three steps or six steps walking meditation to improve our mindfulness, Samatha practice. But if I understood you correctly, you are not a big fan of this. So besides contemplating and reflecting, how do we practice while walking here? Um, again, you can do three, you can do six steps if you want to. It really, again, it depends on the kind of results you're getting. Yeah, if you want, if that works for you and it, you feel it is heading in the right direction, that's okay. But um, to my mind, it's good to have some time when we do something different, not always doing the same thing. If you do too much to samata, 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 after a while, the mind rebels a little bit, doesn't want to do it anymore. So having a break is useful. So do some samatha when you're sitting. It's much better when you're sitting, just watching the breath. And then when you walk, develop your perceptions. And it's not really vipassana. It's more like developing your perceptions. So developing your perceptions of you know, other people. Do some metta contemplation. What, how should I look at this person? See their good qualities. Reflect on such things. Just walk back and forth and enjoy the peace. Learn to enjoy peace and stillness in the environment. Uh, do some death contemplation. Uh, okay, I'm going to die. Uh, when am I going to die? don't know. What does that mean? Uh, what does it feel like if I know I'm going to die? What if I'm going to die tomorrow? What does that feel like? Uh, what is important in life if I'm going to die tomorrow? Uh, what if I'm going to die my next breath? Uh, it's almost scary. You don't want to breathe. You're afraid of breathing. You're right. Oh. <laughs> That's kind of what happens. So... Um, and so these are the kind of reflections you can do. You can do a, just a general anicca sanya, the impermanent sanya, sabbaloka anabhidatta sanya, the kind of non-delight in the whole world. Because actually the world of the five senses is not all that interesting. Yeah. So you can do all of these kind of things. Uh, yeah. And it's, you can contemplate the sutta as we have been talking about. Uh, what do they mean to me? How can I put these things into practice? Uh, how can I rejoice in having such wonderful spiritual companions on the spiritual path. Uh, why am I not rejoicing enough in that? Uh, what's going on there? Uh, okay, maybe I need to look at people in a new way. Actually, sometimes you see the irritating things, but you know that under the surface uh, there's many good things happening. Uh, then you kind of bring it alive in this way. Uh. So, uh, But in, in the end, uh, you know, take responsibility for your own practice. Uh, know what works for you. Uh. 
And, uh, but don't be too sure about what works for you because sometimes we think what works for us actually turns out to be not the best way after all. So do it for a while, but also inquire all the time. Uh, never be satisfied with a particular practice. Always monitor yourself. Uh, ask yourself whether it's really working, especially at the end of the meditation. Uh, did this work? Did it not work? Uh, sometimes indulging in sensual pleasures can seem to work. Uh, yeah, well, I had this really nice meal. I feel really peaceful afterwards. Uh, yeah, so but that is a lack of of real insight into what is going on. The reason you feel peaceful is because you were hungry before, and so your kind of mind settles down a little bit. It doesn't mean that eating is the path to enlightenment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this is what I mean. You need to inquire a bit more deeply sometimes. Uh, yeah. All right. Dino Ajahn, thank you for your deep teachings. This afternoon you mentioned about hearing is the last sense to leave, to let go before jhana. Could you please talk more about that? Uh, in modern science it is reported that people in coma, unconscious states, still could hear. It seems like letting go of hearing is very difficult. Thank you. Uh, yes, I think that's a good point. Uh, people in comas, they are unconscious, they are still sometimes aware of their surroundings. Uh, and it is very important to treat people in coma in a good way. Yeah, when you're with them, speak kind words to them, show your affection to them, be, you know, give them a hug, whatever it is. Do kind things around people in coma so we don't give them more dukkha. It's difficult enough to be in coma probably. And uh, I think the way to bring people out of a coma is very often that they feel they need to feel safe, that they come back into the world, they need to feel good about it, they need some motivation to come out of those things. Uh, that motivation will help them, I believe, in coming out of comas. Uh, if there's no motivation because they feel the world is kind of difficult or whatever, uh, then uh, there's more, m less likely that that will happen. Uh, so... Um, so that's a, it's a good point. Uh, yeah, people are often much more conscious than we think they are, uh, and uh, it's the same thing with hearing. The sa sound seems to be the last sense that turns off, uh, and uh, it just means what it really means, I suppose, is just that um, you know this is kind of maybe the thing that um, protects us in a certain way from the environment. So the sound is kind of left there so that we can kind of react to the environment if it is dangerous or something like that. And, uh, you know, at night you wake up from sounds, usually, uh, these kind of things. And so that's why we need to have a quiet environment when you meditate. You don't want to have anything that startles you too much and these sort of things. And that's really what it comes down to. It is mentioned in the suttas. There's a sutta that talks about the thorns to meditation. And the thorns there are the things that stop you from entering meditation. And uh, the thorn to the first jhana is sound. Yeah? It's the thing that blocks you from entering the first jhana and may also be able to draw you out of a jhana state. Uh, and the various levels of uh, samadhi, they have different thorns uh, uh, to them. Uh, thorn to sense restraint is uh, enjoying shows. <laughs> Uh, the thorn too, yeah, etc., etc. There's a lot, lot of thorns there, here. and um, yeah. So, uh, not sure what more there is to say about that. Uh, um, eventually, you turn off the hearing altogether. Uh, you enter jhana, uh, and uh, then you are really super duper happy. All right. <laughs> uh, <coughs> Tirajan, in daily life, uh, there are many situations we are just sitting or standing, uh, not doing anything actively. Uh, 
It is easy to be with a breath during these times with your eyes open. Is there any value in practicing with a breath like this? Um, I don't know. I Maybe... I mean, if it calms you down, uh, yeah, and you feel at ease, and it makes you kind of uh, the mind move in a good direction, then it is positive. Uh, but if it's just kind of being with the breath, uh, you know, be, uh, for, for the sake of it, I, w- I would argue it's probably more useful to develop a kind of perception, uh, yeah, develop a perception of metta or compassion or something like that. Uh, might be m- even more useful. Uh, um, if you're going to do the breath practice, I would recommend sitting down uh, at the very least. Uh, and... Um, Sometimes it can be useful even to do short breath meditations. You are right about that, even if it's just a few minutes, especially if you get a bit stressed during daily life. It can allow you to let go a little bit, to feel a bit more peaceful, to become a better person. So I would say it really depends. Yeah, It's not. Uh, find out for yourself. That's much more important than asking me about this. There isn't really any final answer to these kind of questions. Uh, you notice in your own life what works for you. Uh, that is the significant thing. I, does What makes you feel peaceful? What gives rise to wholesome qualities? Uh, what reduces the unwholesome qualities? Yeah, Check with yourself. Uh, and um, that is really the way forward. Uh, for some of these questions, there isn't really any right answer because it depends on how you do it. Uh, it depends on your attitude to what is happening here. Uh, Depends on so many factors. It's not, you know, this sort of question doesn't have a yes or no answer. It's like, well, okay, it's um, it's uncertain, really. Yeah. So check out what's going on. See what gives rise to good qualities, and then you're going to be on the right track. Yeah. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned yesterday that the Buddha mentions many other causes of pain uh, uh, other than kamma. Could you please elaborate? And could you please also... Tell the name of that sutta. Okay, so there are a number of suttas that talk about this. I think this is in the Dard Sutta, in the Vedana Sangyutta, Sangyutta Nikaya uh, 3621 or something like that. I don't know how well you know your suttas, but if you go to the uh, uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, it is divided into 56 chapters. uh, And the 36th chapter is called the Vedana Sangyutta, the Connected Discourse on Feelings. Uh, The 21st Sutta, I think, is called the Dard Sutta, I think, Salla. And I think that is where the eight causes of feelings are mentioned. Uh, It is mentioned actually in a number of places. That's only one sutta, mentioned in another three or four places, something like that. Uh, And so it says that only one cause of our experiencing painful feelings, or happy feelings for that matter, is due to past actions. Uh, Another reason is illness. Uh, In ancient India, they had this kind of special medical terminology. Illness is caused by bile, by phlegm, and by wind, I think, or a combination of the three. Uh, These are all the illnesses. Uh, So illnesses uh, are not necessarily caused by past actions, uh, this is very contrary to how we often were taught things in Buddhism. You get cancer. Why? Because you're a human being. Human beings get cancer. This is what happens to human beings. You have heart disease because human beings have heart disease. You get COVID. Everyone gets COVID. So no wonder you get COVID. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of these things that happen to us happen because we are in a world where these things happen. You were born as a human. Human beings get these things. If you get a dev- become a deva, maybe you don't have cancer. Actually, probably don't. Yeah, Devas don't. That would be really disappointing if you go to deva roka and you still get cancer. Wouldn't that be disappointing? 
I thought at least I could get out of cancer when I go to Daimalok. And this is kind of really, but some things you don't get out of, like war, they still have war in some of these heavenly realms. Uh, it's a bit more subtle. Yeah, it's not kind of you don't die so easily and all of that, but it's still, you know, because devas are just glorified human beings. They are basically like us. A bit more happiness, a bit more power, live a little bit longer, but essentially the same problems. <laughs> it's not as great as it sounds sometimes. That's why we'd want to end this whole sangsaric existence. So, and then there is um, other causes of kamma in there. Of, uh, one is assault. Yeah. Assault means you're walking in the wrong place at the wrong time. People assault you. This is what happens. Uh, if you don't think that your kamma is so good, no one is going to assault me. It doesn't have anything to do with your kamma. It has to do with your stupidity, walking in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, you get assault, Maybe not stupidity, maybe just bad luck, maybe you don't know the city or whatever. Sometimes people assault others. Uh, that's just the way things are. They want to steal from you or whatever. Uh, that's just uh, happens. Uh, it's not your bad kamma. It's because you are human. Uh, this happens to human beings. Uh, accidents, I think, is another one. Uh, yeah, you walk down the street, you don't see the curb, you stumble, and you fall over, and you die. Okay, just an accident. Uh, people die from illnesses. Uh, they die from assault. They die from accidents. Uh, and so sometimes you die not because of bad karma, but because of uh, these other reasons. Uh, I think another one is just the change of the seasons, yeah? The uju, huh? so, so the seasons change, sometimes you feel cold, sometimes you feel hot, sometimes you feel wet because of the rain. Huh? That's also dukkha of a certain kind. Huh? That happens because of that. Huh? The weather, huh? all of these kind of things. So there's all these things in the world uh, that happens to you because you are human. Uh. So the problem is not that you have a specific bad karma in the past. The problem is that you were re reborn as a human being. That was your mistake, yeah? <laughs> My mistake also, right? We all got here for the same reason. So, so this is what the sutta says. So this general feeling that you know very, very common in Buddha, everything is due to kamma, actually is not really not really true. And if everything was due to the kamma, Buddha says there would be no escape because it means that even your volitions now, what you do now, is driven by past actions, and you are trapped in the cycle of just. Uh, one thing leading to something else, and there's no way out of it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so there you are. Yeah. There is a um, a series of talks on the internet, uh, Kamma and Rebirth in Early Buddhism, that I did with Venerable Sujata and Sujata back in 2013 or 14 or something like that, 2014 maybe, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, and they are really, really good um, Talks on Kamma and Rebirth. They are available on YouTube. Kamma and Rebirth in Early Buddhism. Ajahn Sujato and me here. Two of us together here. So check it out. Dear respected Ajahn Brahmali, I really liked your choice of differentiating the schools of Buddhism as being early Buddhism or not rather than Theravada versus Mahayana, etc. etc. It makes sense to me as a guideline to follow here. I saw that there's a course on early Buddhism online available, which you and Bhante Sujato, yeah, that's exactly the one, yeah, put together a few years ago. I was thinking to do that myself. Would that be useful as grounding? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your kindness. Okay, nice smiley face. Okay, that's good. Uh, happy to see that. <laughs> So yes, that is a good one. I think it's so 2013, I think, was the first one we did. It was like a workshop, and that was called uh, 
what was that called? It was called early Buddhism. What was that? Mm, I think it was just maybe early Buddhism or something like that. Uh, or and that very first one was basically just about being able to distinguish, uh, yeah, the Buddha's teaching from everything else. Uh, and we went on for quite a while with that one. Uh, I think it might be available online. That some of those things may have got lost in the uh, in the meantime. Uh, but uh, they should be there. And the very, so the very first course with it was focusing on what actually is early Buddhism. How do we distinguish early Buddhism from later Buddhism? What if the Buddha was around? If, if anything, what was the word of the Buddha? What is not the word of the Buddha? And all of that is very interesting. There's a lot of historical, easy historical guidelines to use to discover what the Buddha taught. Most people have no idea what the Buddha taught. They know a lot about Buddhism, but not about what the Buddha taught. Isn't that kind of funny? Huh? Yeah, and you, you can't really trust when you hear this is what the Buddha taught. Huh? Don't trust it. Huh? Yeah. I remember we had a conference on Buddhism in Perth back in 2016, something like that, I can't remember now, 17, 18, um, before the pandemic. And uh, I remember all of these people were doing presentations, uh, yeah, and every one of them had a quote by the Buddha. So the quote and then the Buddha underneath, right? Uh, and I knew already when it has that the Buddha underneath, I know dodgy, yeah, very, very likely to be dodgy. I knew that. So I watched every single of those quotes, yeah, almost every speaker. I was the last speaker on that conference. Uh, and the first thing I said, as I said, I've been watching all those Buddha quotes. Not a single one of them is authentic. Yeah. <laughs> Not a single one, right? So this is how skeptical you have to be here. If you know your suttas well, and I know my suttas reasonably well, you can tell pretty much straight away which ones are authentic and which ones are not. Not a single one was authentic. And so there was this nice, I was in California recently, I was in the US and it was kind of nice to be in the US, but I, I went to this Buddhist center and there's a fellow there who also had Norwegian background. He, was, he ran this center, it's a fellow called Gil Fronsdal. And so I went, you know, he invited me up to his office and he had this kind of this, uh, this uh, poster on the wall, uh, on this poster had the picture of the Buddha, uh, yeah, uh, and then underneath it had the quote, uh, pretty sure I never said that, uh. <laughs> the Buddha. <laughs> Be and because all of those quotes are usually fake, yeah, so pretty sure I never said that, but that's the quote from the Buddha. I thought that was a really cool one, so I took a picture, I took a picture of that and I have it on my laptop just to remind me of these things. Uh. <laughs> and so, um, Please have a look at that um, uh, that thing we did. We have actually written a book as well. Go online. Uh, this book is called The Authenticity of the Early Buddhist Texts. The Authenticity of the Early Buddhist Texts was published by the Oxford Center for Buddhist Studies. Uh, yeah, uh, the person who published this is an he was the professor of Sanskrit at Oxford University for four, thirty years something. His name is Richard Gombrich. Uh, and uh, so it, it is, uh, this has been peer-reviewed by very kind of the highest academic standards. So this is, this is actually considered good research, uh, authenticity of the early Buddhist texts. Uh, and uh, I w I'm actually going to the UK. I will be going to the UK quite soon, uh, not long after Melbourne, first to Poland and then to the UK. Uh, and I've actually been invited to Oxford University to give a talk to the academics at Oxford University. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I'm a Buddhist monk. They should be teaching me. I, you know, I, what, what do I know about languages? They are the professionals. Uh, and then they have invited me to give a talk. That's kind of, I was a bit chuffed when that happened. I thought, yeah, okay, this is the right way. This is the way it should be. Uh, <laughs> So I'm going to give a talk to all of these translators at Oxford University. Yeah. 
And so that's kind of nice. And it means that there is, even in academia, which often is very kind of cold and, uh, you know, and doesn't really have that kind of warm-hearted side of Buddhism, uh, there is an appreciation of monastics, uh, yeah? Even though I don't know anything compared to them, uh, who am I, you know? I, I guess there is a different kind of knowledge that you have as a monk, yeah? and that different kind of knowledge uh, is also appreciated in these academic circles. Uh. So I was really happy. I got this email from a lady called Kate Crosby, a professor of Buddhist studies, a Numata professor of Buddhist studies at Oxford University. I thought, what? They're inviting me to give a talk? All right. <laughs> of course, I accept straight away because for me, that's a very interesting thing to do. Yeah, it's a fun challenge. So uh, I uh, looked up on the internet recently the place where I'm going to give the talk. is this old ancient room, as you would expect Oxford University, with this kind of special, it's just a round table. It looks like a dining room, for goodness sake. But that's where I'm going to give this talk. Yeah, it's, this is kind of Oxford University going back to the 12th century or something like that. Uh, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, and was, uh, So I was really, uh, yes, I'm going to do this. Uh, so check out some of those things because I believe that the information is actually quite high quality stuff. It is not, you know, I'm just saying this to make you feel that what you're getting is the real deal. It's not some dodgy kind of research. And so the authenticity of the early Buddhists and also the course that we did online, that was really the beginning of that book that we wrote. So check it out. All right. Dear Ajahn, you said yesterday that one can forgive oneself for reacting in an unwholesome way to certain overwhelming situations as we are conditioned to do so. But we are also heirs to our own kamma. I can forgive myself and others, but what to do with kamma vipaka when our bad kamma ripens? So uh, bad kamma is the feelings. Yeah? Bad kamma is not your intention. Bad kamma is how you feel. So when you feel dukkha, suffering, because of kamavipaka, kamavipaka here always means suffering. Yeah? I mean, that's what we are concerned about. It can also mean happiness, because you can have good kamma, but uh, is it painful feelings that are hard. So how do you deal with those painful feelings? You have compassion for yourself. Everyone in the world experiences painful feelings. No one wants to have these feelings. Yes, we may have done bad kamma in the past, but we didn't know what we were doing here. If we had understood what we were doing, we would never do those things. We don't want to experience the pain now. So your compassion for yourself, you know that you were in darkness, you know that you were deluded about the nature of life. So you have even more compassion because you are creating suffering without really understanding that you are creating suffering for yourself. You're blind to what is going on. And now you have to experience the results of that blindness. And that's kind of... Really seems almost unfair. Yeah, how can I create suffering for myself when I don't understand? But that is the nature of these things. So have compassion. Kamavipaka means compassion. Kamavipaka does not determine your intentions. So if you feel a lot of suffering, you can still have intentions now that are wholesome and positive. Yeah, you're not trapped to do bad things by kamavipaka. Kamavipaka is just about the feeling, not about the intention and how you live on from here on. So you use your understanding of Buddhism and these teachings to ensure that your intentions are positive. Even if you suffer a lot, right? Okay, I'm not going to allow the suffering to drag me down. I'm going to live well despite that. So our 
unwholesome actions, uh, even though conditioned responses uh, will result in negative karma and future repercussions. Uh, so on the one hand, we're not responsible, but on the other hand, we do inherit our karma, yes? So you, uh, uh, your conditioned responses uh, is not karma. That's different. There's two different things here. Karma is the feelings. Uh, the conditioned responses is how your will and choices are determined by your habits in the past. Two slightly different things. Uh, uh, and to some extent, we cannot change our vipaka in the present moment, but we can change our choices and our habits. Uh, yeah, you just make sure right now you are careful. You think before you act. Uh, yes, you are conditioned to a large extent, but there's also the ability to not to follow that conditioning fully, but to change the conditioning here and now in the present moment by being circumspect. Yeah. Okay. Now I feel like saying something. Yeah. Uh, Let's imagine I felt like saying something bad to Adonisarano, right? I don't actually feel like that. But let's say that I can think, wait a minute, Adonisarano is a good monk. He's a friend of mine. I've known him for 30, almost 30 years. I don't want to say anything bad to Adonisarano. I want to be kind to him. And I know if I say something kind to him, he will feel good. And I want him to feel good. Why would I want him to feel bad? And so I stop myself before I say that bad thing. I reflect carefully on the Buddha's advice. Then I change the course of my actions. So the idea is to do this all the time. Every time you are tempted to think a bad thought, stop before you think that bad thought. That is really hard to do because sometimes the conditioning is very strong. The bad thought arises. But then you stop yourself. Wait. Choose again, allow the present wisdom that comes from the Buddha's teachings to change and to add to that conditioning from the past. So you're reconditioning yourself in this way. That is the right way of thinking about it. What a contradiction, please. It's not really a contradiction here. Yeah, you are trapped to some extent uh, from the past conditioning, but you use the present ability uh, to change that. Uh. All right. Hope it makes a little bit of sense to you. Uh. If not, do they get money back if they if if they can't make sense of what's going on? They <laughs> can't get their money back. They say, okay. So if you next day, you have, maybe you have to find a different teacher. Maybe it's just impossible for me to explain this. Uh. Maybe it's just beyond me. Uh. I don't know. Uh. Anyway, see what happens. <laughs> Dear Ajahn Brahmali, heartfelt thanks for reminding us of the beauty of the Buddha's teaching, Sadhu. My question is one's intention. Sometimes good intentions don't necessarily result in good outcomes. Uh, how can one define what, is wholesome, what wholesome intention is? Uh, many thanks with Metta. That is true. Sometimes we have good intentions and actually the outcome is not good. Uh, and that's okay. Remember, sometimes the, the only thing we can really do is to assume that on average our good intentions will have good outcomes. Sometimes it will not happen because the world is very complex. So on average, however, it will have good outcomes. All you can do is have good intentions. Yeah, You can't really do anything more than that. But what you can do is you can add wisdom to your good intentions. The more, more wisdom... Uh, is added to those good intentions, the more likely that the outcome will be good because you see the bigger picture here. Yeah, you understand things from a kind of more bird's eye kind of view. And that is really the ideal thing. So add to that compassion and kindness, add as much wisdom as you possibly can. Often that means not engaging. Often that means just being peaceful and quiet, right? Because 
Um, sometimes you just can't do anything here. Sometimes, just like the Buddha here, sometimes the best thing is to walk away. We saw that today in the uh, Upakalesa Sutta, right? Sometimes we try too hard because we are attached to the other people. Instead of letting go, we're kind of holding on. All of these things are aspects of wisdom that makes you more smarter in how you have good intentions. But even then, it is not always going to work out well. Even then, there are going to be limits. So in the end, remember that for you, what matters is your good intentions. If you have good intentions, you are going to reap the benefits, even if the result is bad. Because your intentions are good. That's all that really matters. You can only do your best. If you've done your best, you can breathe and you can kind of be relaxed and easy. Okay, if the world doesn't want to listen to me, it's the world's problem, not my problem. So I tried to create the perfect world. I didn't succeed. And so none of my business. You've done your very best. It's all you can do. All right. Dear Ajahn, I find it easier to be uh, pro process of breathing rather than concentrating on the nostrils. Uh, okay, so go with the process then, if that's, you find it easier, so that's good. But do we have to be with the entire length of the breathing, uh, in, in pause, breathing out pause, uh, otherwise attention wavers? Uh, how to be just with the breath and nothing else. So don't try too hard to be with just the breath because the mind slowly is conditioned to be more and more with the breath. So the idea is just to relax. And sometimes there's many things going on in the mind. The breath is there. There's a bit of thinking in the background. There's a bit of sensory input to hear a bit. And all of these things are going on kind of at the same time. So the idea is that as you keep on staying with the, the breath is there, these other things gradually fade away. But don't make them fade away. Allow them to fade away over time. Because the mind takes a long time sometimes to let go of things. And this is one of the reasons why Ajahn Brahm's method of meditation, when you asked him, what should I do? He says, always sit longer. In the, in the earlier, that was his kind of main advice, to sit longer. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, and uh, that is a good piece of advice uh, because it tends to work. But of course, there's a limit to how your patience and your, what your body can do and all these kind of things. Uh, so you need to find a balance there somewhere. Uh, but it takes time. Uh, so you stay with the breath. You allow those thoughts to be in the background. Don't push it away. That's just more willpower and more bad things. Just allow them and just kind of gradually lean towards the breath. Uh, and then occasionally nudge the mind a little bit towards some positive feelings, positive recollections. Uh, and this is gradually moving in the right direction. Uh, yeah, over the years, you will start to see the uh, the effects of these things. It's kind of a, it's um, sometimes it can be painfully slow to see find progress in a meditation, uh, and uh, very often it is uh, not because you're not doing enough. Usually, it's because you're doing too much. Uh, usually. Just relax. Just really enjoy. Really let go. And even if your mind is all over the place, it is fine because at least you are enjoying what you're doing. It is painful to always control. It is painful to always try to be in charge of everything. And by really letting go, just by enjoying, sitting in that nice armchair and just kind of chilling, after a while you start enjoying that. Then the breath comes and then it actually works all of a sudden. So you have to... Learning to enjoy the meditation is so important. Uh, and then seeing the positive benefits from all of that. Uh, it was interesting. I remember a few years ago I was speaking to one of my colleagues. Uh, 
In other words, a monk. I was speaking to, was speaking to a monk, and he was a, quite a good meditator. been following Ajahn Brahm for a long time, uh, and he was getting some really nice results going deeper. Uh, and he told me that, uh, you know, after all of this meditation, I still realize I'm doing too much. Uh, yeah, years and years of meditation, uh, yeah, and experiencing lots of bliss and peace. Uh, but he couldn't really take it all the way. The reason was doing too much. Uh, so this is very subtle, this idea of doing. Yeah. And that is often the, uh, the thing that uh, stops us from enjoying. So just relaxing, uh, just being at peace, enjoying it, gently nudging the mind, uh, not doing very much at all. Uh, gradually uh, allowing the breath to evolve by itself. Uh, short breath, long breath. Gradually the breath comes together. Gradually you see more because mindfulness is becoming stronger. Uh, mindfulness becomes stronger uh, automatically, uh, through the process of just living in this way, mindfulness is enhanced. Uh, that is really what you want to do. Uh, you can't do these things so much. You have to allow them to appear uh, by a gentle encouragement in your practice. Uh. Okay, so this is very good timing. We're coming towards the end. Uh, for older people uh, with dementia and Alzheimer is a growing concern. Uh, uh, could medication help uh, you to overcome this condition? Uh, um, I guess, yeah, so please use medication if there is medication for these things. Uh, I don't know. Do you mean meditation or medication? You've written medication. I'm not, maybe you meant meditation because I kind of is, I don't really know much about medication. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, so, so use medication if that's what you mean. Of course, there's nothing wrong with using medication. And I say to people, sometimes people think in Buddhism that on your deathbed you should not use medication. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think it's perfectly okay to use medication on your deathbed uh, because your mind gets released from your body anyway. As soon as the mind gets released from the body, clarity comes back uh, and you, all your Buddhist teachings, everything you have to do comes back to you. I think it's actually better to use medication because that gives you at least a sense of being relieved from all the pain and everything. Uh, uh, Alzheimer and dementia... Uh, I don't know if there is much good medication for it, but meditation certainly is helpful. So meditation is a medication <laughs> in this case. <laughs> so use the meditation medication. Uh, and then you are probably on the right. Like they say that actually this is good for Alzheimer and dementia to use me meditation practice. So uh, absolutely. Uh, um, but do the right kind of meditation, uh, meditation where you relax, uh, where you enjoy it, uh, you don't use too much force, uh, where you have a good time, uh, then I think it is far more powerful than if you try to force the meditation too much. Uh, so the answer is yes on all counts. Uh. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned yesterday that it is hard to meditate when one is in pain. Do you have any words of wisdom for people with chronic uh, debilitating pain, which is not uh, responsive to modern medication? Uh, I have similar pain, uh, and it is very intense, uh, uh, and which is not responsive to any treatment. Uh, I have tried every possible treatment in the world. Uh, well, that sounds tiring, okay. Uh, so does that mean that I would never be able to go into deep meditation states? Uh, <coughs> no, it does not, does not mean that. Uh, it just means that um, uh, it is going to be more difficult for you, for sure. Uh, but uh, don't give up. 
Uh, and uh, the answer is that sometimes, like everyone, sometimes you will feel peaceful, sometimes the pain will be less, sometimes it will be worse. Find the best possible posture for yourself. Uh, sometimes lying down can be a good posture for people with chronic pain because it minimizes the pain uh, and it maximizes the ease of the body. Uh, so try lying down, lying on your back. Uh, not lying in the usual posture for sleeping maybe, but if you sleep on your side, lie on the back. Uh, and try to meditate that way. That can minimize maybe the pain. Uh, and then when you feel peaceful, then try to go with the breath. Use this idea of bringing up some good uh, recollections from the past. So you bring up a bit of joy and happiness that will counter the pain. Yeah, Because you have something else to focus on that is preferable. Uh, and then sometimes you will have success. Uh, um, sometimes you can focus on the pain itself. Some people recommend this. Uh, and when you focus on the pain, you will find that sometimes the pain dissolves a little bit. It decreases in intensity. And you can play with the pain. You can kind of move it around, do various kind of things. So play around with this a little bit. Sometimes just stay with a meditation object. Other times focus on the pain. And find out what time of the day the pain is the least, for example. Meditate when you feel the mind is most able to deal with these things. So be... Be smart about this. Use a good posture, whatever that might be. Yeah. But yes, it, of course, it is going to be. It's not. It's not a. Not helpful, but it certainly is not impossible. Yeah. And once you start to overcome that, and you start to get joy and happiness coming in a meditation, yeah, uh, eventually that pain will disappear completely. Yeah. And all you are left with is the bliss of the mind. Then you can enter deep states of meditation as a consequence. Yeah. Last question for tonight. Uh, dear Ajahn, I always practice mindfulness from moment to moment, uh, but my understanding changed after attending your workshops on Satipatthana. Not sure now what is meant by off-cushion meditation. Uh, everyone talks about moment-to-moment -moment awareness as practice of sati, but your views are different. Uh, so I'm a bit confused now. Please explain, Venerable Mashkara. So I've talked about this already quite a bit, uh, and uh, the, the, the point is that what we are really trying to do uh, on this path is to purify ourselves, uh, to improve uh, our virtue and kindness and morality throughout the day, to always react in the right way. Mindfulness has a specific purpose, uh, to make us more pure, more kind, uh, overcome the bad qualities, and also to correct our views. Uh, and that's why I was saying before, using mindfulness to... Uh, Develop your perceptions during the day. Yeah. When you develop those perceptions during the day, uh, just seeing the anicca, impermanence of the world, developing perceptions of kindness and all of these kind of things, uh, then you're also using the mindfulness in a positive way, reminding yourself of the teachings of the Buddha. Yeah. Just mindfulness for its own sake, yeah. there is not much evidence that, that is incredibly useful. Yeah. Uh, because it is that the Buddha never says that mindfulness leads to mindfulness. Uh, the Buddha says that sila and ujjukaditi leads to mindfulness. Uh, this is the foundation for mindfulness. Uh, that is what we should focus on. Okay, everyone, so that is all for tonight. So, as I wish you a wonderful night's sleep, may you sleep really well, come back rested tomorrow morning, and we'll carry on tomorrow. And for now, let's do the Arahang Samma Sambuddha together. Yeah.